Welcome to Composers in a Jukebox, a podcast that brings together a special breed of musicians in a conversation about their craft. Today, we are privileged to be sitting with multi-award-winning composer and sound designer Lindsay Jones to chat about his work in film, theatre and audio drama. Hello, hello. How's everyone doing? Doing great. Yeah, doing well. This is exciting. <laughs> it is really exciting, isn't it? So today we've got a really special podcast lined up for you. We're joined by uh, a multi-award winning composer, uh, Lindsay Jones, who has, um, of all things, been nominated for two Tony Awards for his best original score and best sound design for a theatre show called Slave Play. Uh, his work on A Note of Triumph, The Golden Age of Norman Corwin, has landed it an Academy Award win for Best Documentary uh, Short Subject in 2006. He is also an outrageously versatile composer that has done so much work for films, TV, documentary, games, plays, musicals and podcasts, as well as being a Marvel collaborating composer for the audio drama Marvel Wastelanders. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> and thanks for joining us. Welcome. <laughs> welcome Thank you. Welcome Woo! to the club. <laughs> I'm, How are you I'm doing, glad Jay? to be here. Good, good. I'm doing great. How are you guys? Yeah, we're, we're really, really good. Um, we're, we're all at very different ends of the world. Uh, <laughs> the team from Composers and Jukebox are here in Beaconsfield uh, in the UK, and it's 3 p.m. right now. And Lindsay is joining us from uh, the United States. Uh, sorry, which part of the U.S. specifically are you? Chicago. At? Chicago. Today, yeah, today I'm in Chicago. I'm I'm working today at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. So I'm wow. I'm here for the day, but I'll be in Los Angeles by the end of the night. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, is is that a show that's going on tonight? Or it is. Yeah, it's a play. Um, we're doing the Comedy of Errors by William Shakespeare. So. I'm writing music and doing sound design for that. Oh, amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, so you've got a massive, massive CV of, of loads of, <laughs> you know, really varied things, uh, including, you know, work for film, for theatre, for video games. You teach as well, um, to yes. some extent. How do you balance all of that in your life? Boy, that that is a fantastic question. I mean... There's not a great answer to that other than I basically work all day, every day, and try as hard as I can to make everyone happy while I do it. Um, and yeah, I have, I have, uh, I, I'm just one of those people who are really inspired and engaged by new challenges all the time. It's just like being given some creative challenge that I don't necessarily know the answer to is really a thing that actually sort of sustains me like it's like a thing that like I get up in the morning and I'm excited to get up and go to work and so um I I'm surely have some sort of mental defect that has uh put me in this position but really it's just I I just enjoy working and um as a result I try to keep myself as busy as possible and uh somewhere in there it's just about um working hard and working quickly and uh, trying to just juggle so many things. The part of the trick of it is to make everyone that you work with feel like they're the number one priority in your life, um, so that you know that they feel like, oh yeah, this guy's busy, but he really is busy only for me. Um, and if you can make seven people feel that at the same time, um, then you're you're in good shape. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the making people feel like you're their number one priority because I think that is, the, the work part of it is obviously challenging, but for myself, that is the most challenging part is just being able to manage that many people at the same time and really make them feel like you're giving it your all consistently. Do you have certain strategies for say, if there's, this is a bit of a specific question, but like scheduling yeah. conflicts or things that unfortunately overlap and you might have to make some compromises timing wise, just kind of handling that on a personal level. Because I'd imagine when you work on this many projects, you'd either have to schedule things incredibly meticulously or also, you know, make some uh, concessions. Yeah, you know, it is true that scheduling down to the second is really uh, key when you're juggling multiple projects. And the other thing that I really try to encourage people to do, certainly it's something that I do, is I try to be as transparent as possible about um, when I can be available and when I can't be available. So like the one thing I can give advice to people is, is if you have overlapping projects, um, Try to work the schedule as best you can so that everyone is getting the most exposure that you can possibly offer, you know what I mean, in terms of making sure that you're, you're there. And then communicate that as clearly as possible. And I think the way to really reassure employers that you are reliable is to say, okay, um, this is my window of availability. This is when I'm going to achieve this step. And this is when I'll achieve this step. And this is when I'll achieve this step. And then the most important part, you have to do that. You have to absolutely yeah. meet those <laughs> deadlines <laughs> so that you really fulfill it. And then if you come in and you fulfill those deadlines that you've established for yourself and you do high quality work and you're, you feel like you're turning in good stuff, um, generally speaking, people will be like, oh, well, okay, we didn't have them all the time, but you know, we knew exactly what we were getting. We got it when we said we would, and we're pleased with the end product. And then people are usually willing to let that thing, uh, you know, the parts where you're not there slide. Um, so communication and then dependability is the, is the absolute uh, most important thing in terms of quality and in terms of um, punctuality, making sure that things really happen when they say they're going to happen and just be in constant communication with people that's the trick and i would say in my job you know 50 percent of what i do is writing music and creating sound design and the other 50 percent is what i call personality management um it is really working directly with people and collaborating with them and really establishing a human connection so that people understand that you're super invested in what you're doing and you really want it to be great and you want to you want to make them happy over anything else and then uh, people will usually sort of give you some wiggle room in terms of your commitment yeah thanks that's a great answer very detailed totally i mean i'm I'm just really interested in your uh workflow especially in in composition because of course um in in this industry that we're in um having to produce music write music in really really quick time uh is is a huge thing especially for someone who has as much work as as you do um have you got any 
hot tips or tricks of the trade that you might be able to share with composers, uh, especially those who are sort of young and, and, and learning and growing as to how you might, you know, speed up um, one's compositional process? Or if that is at all a thing that you think about? Yeah, I mean, it, it is in the sense that, I mean, okay, let's talk about what is possible and what isn't possible. Because um, there is the part which is creating a, a sort of space and technique for yourself that allows you the greatest opportunity for creativity, right? And so the first thing I recommend people is um, solidify your process in terms of like how you approach things. Like, you know, in, in, like if I'm scoring a film, you know, I want to go through and map out, you know, make sure I do the spotting so that all of the, I know where the music's going. I, I know the tone. I've got as much directorial information as I can get in terms of, you know, what I'm looking for, um, setting up the space. Um, another thing I always tell people is, um, and you do this anyway as you're a composer, but if you're dealing a lot with virtual instruments um, or samples, really take the time to learn those uh, instruments because every virtual instrument sort of has like a thing it's great at and it has a thing it's not so great at. And um, if you can sort of get like a general palette in your mind of like, okay, if I'm gonna lean on strings, I'm gonna use this library. If I'm gonna use horns, I'm gonna lean on this library. Like get the things that you feel comfortable with and that you know you can do over and over again um, so that you've got the preparation um, ready so that you can sit down and be like, right, I'm in a zone, I've got my information, and now I have to have creative inspiration. And this is the part that is the hardest part, which is um, actually just coming up with the music. And I think we live in a world now where music is literally everywhere. Music is around us 24 hours a day. It's in, it's on television, it's uh, in the internet, it's if you go into a shopping mall, it's there, it's everywhere. And so I think it being everywhere, people have an impression that writing music can't be that difficult because it's everywhere. How hard could it be? It's all over the place. Um, and, and I will say the part of like, my inspiration in terms of writing music, like where the actual ideas come from, um, I've never really fully investigated that entirely because frankly, I'm not sure I wanna know. You know what I mean? Like there's a sort of like, there's a part of my creative process where like the ideas just show up and I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. And then I just start um, figuring it out. But that inspiration and that sort of like trying to channel that inspiration into the music the other thing I would recommend is try to be the least judgmental version of yourself when you are in the process of creation. A lot of times when I talk to young composers and they're like, how do I get through a writing block? How do I get through being stuck? Um, and I think what happens a lot of the time with the writer's block is, first of all, there's tremendous pressure, right? And you feel like, oh my God, I've got to write the greatest theme of my whole life right now. This is it right here. I'm doing this. And so there's a ton of pressure. And then you write like five notes and you're like, no, this isn't it. This is, no, this is terrible. I'm throwing this away. Um, and if you put that amount of pressure on yourself and then you're also like 
evaluating what you're doing in the moment, I guarantee you it's going to be a very difficult slog through writing those themes. So instead, what I always tell people is if you start something, right, if you're inspired enough to start writing something, finish it. Get to the end of it. Because one of two things has happened. Uh, either one, it's not going to be as bad as you thought it was. And you'll be like, hey, this is actually pretty good. Or the other is you'll get to the end and you'll think, okay, this isn't it, but I know what I need to do to make it work. Or I know how I need to readdress it to start over. So it's a combination of um, having your stuff ready, knowing how to use it, putting yourself in the mind of inspiration with this least sort of judgmental sort of thinking around it and just allow yourself to create and then be super open and flexible as you go and be like, just just take it where the spirit moves you. And then you can always go back and fix it later. And that's, I think that's the secret to working quickly. I'm, I'm going to be keeping that with me. <laughs> yeah. Okay, awesome. <laughs> And learn everything I can about my sample libraries. <laughs> yeah, it helps. It does it, help a lot. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know we use these libraries every every single day of our lives, but there, there's just so much within it that we may or may not know about. And so, just taking some time to perhaps play around with them can be quite useful, even though you know you may not be spending that time writing music. For sure. Yeah, when I download a new library, the first thing I do is before I'm like, oh, let's try and write a piece of music with it. I'm like, what are the sounds of this library? How does it work? How does it play? Like, let me get familiar with it in my hands and and just sort of, uh, you know, see what are the different possibilities of sound. And so then, and this is the part where, again, it is my own sort of mental process of like, just trying as best as possible to file this away in my brain so that six years later when somebody's like, we need this kind of sound, I can be like, wait, I know where this is. And then I can go back and dig it up. <laughs> yeah, totally. And something for our listeners is that uh, to that they should probably know as well is that uh, on top of being a composer, Lindsay, is, uh, Lindsay has done quite a fair amount of work as sound designer as well. And uh, I think, Levent, you've got a sound design question that you were thinking of asking? Do I? I do if you don't. <laughs> well, okay. over, bring um, it on okay. over to Luke over to Luke because <laughs> I, I was really curious about this in general it's it's quite a unique thing to also be able to do sound design especially like to the level where you would get nominated for a Tony for both sound design and score um, I'm curious just kind of mentally how you switch gears between the two and if you switch gears that much between the two because you know they, they can seemingly be very different tasks but there is a tremendous especially with modern music there's a tremendous amount of sound design elements in modern music as well so i'm curious where you see the crossover between those two or if you really have to switch gears when you're doing them say on the same play like the slave play for instance it's funny i don't have a a big process of switching over necessarily and i think there are a couple of reasons why I feel that way I may, and other people may feel differently but um, I think the first part of it is is that I, I'm completely untrained so I have no I've never had a music lesson um, I have no instruction in sound design at all everything I'm doing I'm doing from a place of making it up myself um, uh, and because of that 
um, I have sort of a unique viewpoint on music and sound in, in that I kind of feel like all sound is music on some level. You know what I mean? Like any sound uh, that you can make has some, usually has some sort of musical element that it could be used with. And so when I'm constructing sound design, um, I frequently think of it in a musical way so that uh, it will, uh, you know, really lock into the score. So to me, they are a piece of a whole. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's not like I, I mean, like there are moments where I have to stop writing music and just be like, okay, what's the sound doing here and really focus on that. But I do always think of it as an element of the final sort of oral uh, world of that moment and try to integrate them as much as possible. Um, and I do think that's important as as a composer. If you're a film composer and you're like, ah, I don't really care what the sound design is doing. I'm here to tell you, whether you like it or not, your score is going to live alongside <laughs> a sound design. Oh, it's yeah. happening. Yeah. And, and sometimes probably not to your liking. Um, so if you write that score with no regard as to, as to how it's going to fit in with the rest of everything else, you will find out the hard way uh, that that you you're going to have to do it. So it's worth it, I think, for sound for composers to really consider sound design, even if they don't want to become sound designers, to understand that those two are going to be completely integrated, um, and to write with that in mind, uh, I think is helpful uh, because then you have a you have a better chance of hearing your score rather than your score being mixed super low so that the sound design can be heard over it, which is always just really impressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. So that's the other thing. And, and, you know, the other half of it is, right, at the end of the day, um, composers and sound designers are both storytellers. We all are doing this to tell, help tell a story with our music um, or with our sound design. And so um, I encourage people to really look at these things in terms of how are you telling this story? How can you illuminate this story in a way that will help the audience have a greater appreciation, have a, uh, a greater understanding of what's happening in front of them? And it, the approach of doing that through music and sound design is, is actually pretty much the same. Um, I still have to tell a story either way with that stuff. So. If you can integrate that into your overall creative mindset as you approach um, either of those skills, you'll find there's not a whole lot of difference. It's really just the about how the elements fit together as a whole to tell that story. Yeah, for sure. And just to sort of, you know, touch a bit more on, on slave play, it's a play with a really, really heavy subject matter. Yes. <laughs> about yes. um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's uh, it's a theatrical work that that deals with topics such as uh, how uh, the the relationship between people's uh, racial or social status uh, relate to their sex life and, and their <laughs> personal yeah. lives. How yeah. do you go about dealing with that musically uh, and in terms of sound? Well, so. That show was such an amazing experience for me, and I feel like, um, I mean, I really believe that show was a, a, a huge gift uh, and a blessing to me in so many ways. 
not uh, uh, because of the acclaim it received and because of the acclaim I received as a result of it was really wonderful. But even more than that, um, I feel like I learned so much through that process about other uh, other people's viewpoints on sex and race and uh, gender and class, all of these things that are in that show. And I mean, basically, for those of you who haven't seen Slave Play, essentially, um, I'm going to describe it. But if you get a chance to see it, don't listen to this uh, synopsis because it's way better if you have no idea what you're going into. <laughs> um, but essentially, um, the, the play is split up into three acts. The first act is a series of vignettes of um, people interacting in slavery times. There is uh, an interaction between a white man and a black woman. He is an overseer on the plantation. She's a slave. They have a sexual relationship. Um, then there is a second relationship that is a white woman and a black man. She is the mistress of the plantation. He is a slave. Um, they have a sexual relationship. And then there is a third relationship that is a white man and a black man. Um, they are One is an indentured servant. The other is a, a slave who has been elevated to sort of overseer status. And they have a sexual relationship. And uh, at first, the play seems very confusing. And like everyone is sort of acting in these sort of over melodramatic ways. And um, they seem like they're sort of like they seem like sort of like they're acting out slave times, but something else feels strange. And at the end of act one, you discover that all of these people are actually in a specific type of psychological therapy. Um, and the therapy is what we find out is that these are all modern day couples and they are acting out the roles of these people, that this is just a role play exercise to sort of explore it. And what you learn in the act two is, is that all three of these people are modern couples. They are having difficulty with their marriage. Um, they are unable to relate to one another. And the sort of like underlying theme is that in America, we've never really fully dealt with the after effects of slavery in our country that we had for several hundred years. Um, and that even today in America, there is a lot of like, well, that happened, but let's not talk about that uh, feeling. And we've put that behind us, but the sort of like after effects in terms of how people relate to one another, that still lingers on. And there's still a lot of sort of unspoken tension that, care, that we carry as a result of that. So the third act is really about one couple and how they're dealing with that specifically. There is a violent sexual assault as part of that act, um, which is very, um, which feels very realistic and very scary. And um, yeah, I, I've I've yet to meet anybody who either loves that play or hates that play. Like, there's no one who's like, yeah, it was fine. Like, it's either one or the other because of the ideas that are expressed. In terms of how that music and sound design fits into it, um, what I wound up doing um, was creating a score that was based around 
1800 piano parlor music, um, simple piano, uh, you know, to make it feel like it's, um, you know, something that someone would be playing on the piano in the 1800s for their own personal enjoyment. Um, but then created a certain amount of reverb and um, other effects to make it feel distant and feel slightly haunted in some way. And then the sound design that fits around that is the sound of people who are in a field working. Um, and we don't, you know, they're not under any stress. But the sort of some total reminder of what that score is meant to do is to make you think like someone is having a wonderful time from the benefits of where they live in their society while others are toiling at their expense um, to make to make the you know that person's life easy and I, I you know I think the the thing that I really learned is that many people are ready to talk about the sort of this sort of topic and to clear the air on on this and we do need to clear the air on this but the other thing i learned through this process is there are a lot of people who are still not ready to talk about it and really that is a snapshot of america <laughs> right now <laughs> yeah. that is literally where we are right now but in as, our country as they say it's the stories that help us grow yeah i mean i really uh, you know, that's why I do this is because I'm hoping that through my contribution to the storytelling element, I can get people to think about things that they don't necessarily want to think about and possibly reevaluate their position on it, you know, to allow people to experience others story so that they can say, oh, you know, maybe maybe this is something I should think differently about, you know, and if I if I can do that, then. I've really contributed, I think, to to humanity in a way. And so, I mean, to me, a play like Slave Play that really forces people to look at a very difficult subject, something that a lot of people would prefer not to think about, um, I think is really important. And I'm totally glossing over the part where the, slave, the play is also incredibly funny and really hilarious and, and like all this stuff. Like it's actually an entertaining play. Like it is not just like a, a history lesson on how everything went wrong. But it really is like a, a terrific story on top of it. I really believe the playwright Jeremy O'Harris is a genius. And um, I, I'm just, I was just thrilled to be a part of it. I have a question, Lindsay. So yes. you've been nominated for the Tony Awards. How, how do you feel about it? It's funny because we were literally just talking about um, this year's Academy yeah, yeah, Awards. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Which are tonight. Yeah. 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 It's a total miracle. I mean, like, I'm going to be totally honest with you. It's is uh, I still I still kind of don't believe it, to be honest with you. Like, it still feels um, amazing to me uh, that it happened. You know, I mean, like, I've had these personal goals it, working in theater that I've wanted to achieve. And one of them was, I'd like to be nominated for a Tony Award someday. And I, you know, you set these goals arbitrarily and think, well, that's not gonna really happen. You know what I mean? Like, that I, I, I'm not actually gonna win a Tony Award. <laughs> <laughs> or even be nominated for a Tony Award. But um, yeah. It's good. It is. Yeah. It's still good to do. <laughs> Wherever it's we weird, are. It's weird, you guys. <laughs> like, I'm actually sort of close to achieving a number of goals that I set for myself. Like, for example, 
I, um, when I first started working in theater, I was like, okay, I want to do every single play by William Shakespeare. All 37 plays. Now, that's insane, right? Like, that's, that, it's unbelievably difficult to pull that off. I have one play left, and then I'm done. I, I, I literally have to, some, if somebody out there is producing a production of Two Gentlemen of Verona, please call me. Because that's my, that's my last one. Um, but, uh, but it's like, you set those things at the beginning of your career and you think, well, these, these are things I'd like to do. Um, and then somehow, if you keep at it, you might get there. So I, I tell people, you know, like, set those goals. Make them. Like, give yourself something to work towards, even if it seems insane or impossible, uh, you know, because you you never know. Uh, and I mean, like, it's it's a thing that'll keep you going. I mean, ultimately, at the when I when I wake up every day, I don't think up I don't get up and think today's the day I'm going to win a Tony. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to get up there and I today's my <laughs> award winning day right here. Um because the creativity is really what brings me back to it. But I think um, being inspired and being um, being excited by the work you're doing, it is inevitable, I think, that hopefully that success comes ultimately as a result of that inspiration. Yeah, I'd imagine it's especially kind of special to be nominated for something like Slave Play, especially given the way you described it, where you feel like it's something with a message that's relevant and important and that you're really proud of the music. And the fact that it's getting nominated for Tony's means its reach is going to be even greater. So there's kind of an extra thing besides, you know, just the achievement. Of yeah, the people who it's so true. I mean, like, on there. Um, I mean, what I told people before the Tonys, because there was a, you know, when the Tonys were starting to be talked about, it. and the thing was, this all the 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 year of that uh, of the Tony Awards that I was nominated for was the year of the pandemic. So like, um, you know, Broadway basically closed in March of 2020, and then it was like, um, th then it was first it was like, okay, we'll we'll take a two week break, and then the theater season will come back. And then, okay, well, we're going to take a month break and then theater season will come back. And it was like, uh, we'll take two months. And then it was clear that the theater season was over. Um, and then people were like, are the Tonys? Are there not Tonys? What happened? We didn't do, you know, half the shows that were supposed to happen didn't happen. What do we do? And so I, then I think the American Theater Wing, who runs the Tony Awards, were like, well, okay, this pandemic thing seems to be slowing down. Why don't we announce the Tony nominations in anticipation of the theater season coming back? And that happened in the fall of 2020. And then and then it was like, well, wait a minute. No, this pandemic's not over. And so then it went along. So I was a Tony nominee. Like most people are a Tony nominee for like a month. Or so. In the normal practice of how that works, <laughs> you're usually nominated in April, and by the first weekend of June, you know. But I was nominated in October, and then they didn't have the Tony Awards for like a year. Like literally, like I was, I was a Tony nominee for an entire year waiting for the awards. Oh, that's crazy. And so I was just like, 
I never wanted it to end. I really didn't. I was just like, that's fine. I'll be. A t- I, I don't care about winning. I'm just happy to be in the process for as long as possible. It's like you got the experience it's the best. being nominated for like six I was Tony like the world's longest Tony <laughs> nominee. It was, it was incredible. Um, I mean, obviously it was at the expense of like everything else, but um, but I I I didn't mind it. But I I I did say to people, you know, I, and this is going to sound super corny, but I was really like the gift, the the blessing for me was doing slave play. Everything that happened beyond that, in terms of nominations or recognition or anything else, um, and that is amazing. But I feel like. I got what I wanted just by being able to do the show. So that that's I feel like everything else is gravy. Uh, one other really cool thing you did, uh, and I, I absolutely love this. It's uh, uh, you were the composer for Marvel's Wastelanders, which is an audio drama uh, that's out there on most streaming platforms. Uh, I've listened to it. Oh, great! And uh, it's it's the coolest thing. It's about. It's it's set in some you know dystopian world and it deals with you know Star Lord who's who's old and and Doctor Doom who's basically <laughs> ruined and taken over the world, um, <laughs> and I think it will be it'll be really nice to have a listen uh, to a track which uh, you wrote that comes from the opening um, of each episode of of this audio drama. So let's have a listen to it and uh, we'll pick up from there. How's that? Great. Yeah, so uh, could you could you uh, maybe tell us a bit about um, 
your process for for this particular project and maybe also a bit more generally um how how does working like completely in in an, in an audio drama uh, how does that differ from doing something that yeah has visuals um with it? I first of all want to say that, you know, I really hadn't done a lot of audio dramas previous to the pandemic. And then when live theater shut down in 2020, um, I uh, really wanted to, you know, find a way to make a living. And so um, I thankfully audio dramas sort of were coming along at that point. And uh I feel so incredibly lucky and grateful to have been able to find audio dramas, which are another form of storytelling. And um, they rely entirely on audio. And so suddenly, like, all of the stuff that I had been doing as a composer and a sound designer as, as an element of a storytelling form was like, Oh, okay. I am the storyteller in this version. Like wh what it is, what you hear is literally the entire um, story itself, and it is an incredibly inspiring process to be like, okay, what are all the elements I need to tell this story? Um, for this particular production, um, I did the score, and the sound design was created by a team called One Thousand Birds. Um, who are based in Los Angeles and New York. Uh, it's like a collective of sound designers. And um, it is terrific. They're just fantastic. Um, and I was so pleased to work with them. The process of creating this, and so that sample that you hear, um, that, yeah, so it no, it's, uh, it's, the it's the very, what you heard is the very beginning of the first episode of the, of the series. And the setup is this, is that there are two different sort of worlds that happen in Marvel Wastelanders. One in which, um, as you described, a future dystopian world where um, everything has been destroyed. Um, the people that we think of as villains, Doctor Doom, um, they are now in charge of the Earth. And heroes are looked at as villains. They're all looked at as people who are um, to be hunted down and killed. And um, so the uh, so it that world is sort of junky, um, and there's a lot of glitch that I used in that. It's very synth heavy, and it is like it. It feels like some sort of technology gone wrong. Um, that is the sound of that world, the music of that world. But in Marvel Wastelanders, there is also um, Valeria Richards, who is the daughter of Reed Richards and Susan Richards, who are two members of the Fantastic Four. Their daughter has uh, become obsessed with trying to recreate the glory days of superheroes. And so... She has concocted this sort of fantasy world that's based on Marvel, like what would have Marvel would have been like in its heyday. In other words, the way we perceive Marvel today. And for that, what I was trying to do was create score as much as possible that sounds like contemporary Marvel film music that we hear now. Um, superhero music that feels... Um, 
epic and inspirational and, um, you know, as close to the sort of like Marvel orchestral sound as I can get it. Um, So it was a really interesting process because every episode jumps back and forth between those two worlds. And even that clip that you just heard, you're that it's not it's about 95 percent of um, the traditional orchestral sound that you expect in a Marvel film. But the very end is when everything goes wrong and that sort of glitch world with synth and um, other elements that feel very synthetic. um, That is that's also a big part of the score as well, where things are not sounding so great. Uh, And it was a it was a really cool challenge to go back and forth between those two different universes. Actually, can I can I jump in with a real quick one? Um, Did you have to work with Temp on this project? Or was this left I entirely? I did Oh, that's nice. Oh. Yeah, that's a good question. You guys, it was the best. I'm going to be totally honest. <laughs> that's, that's it nice. was amazing. Yeah. It was so great. Um, no, the only... They, they did not provide me with any temp score whatsoever. Um, they The only thing that we had to deal with was there are a few songs that were um, needle drop music that uh, they wanted to use because... Star Lord um, is a DJ in his spare time, so he like plays throughout the series. There are several times where Star Lord has to like play a DJ at a party or at a at a bar, and so then it was like, well, what what is Star Lord DJing? Who what <laughs> songs is he spinning? And then it was like, okay, what can we afford that Star Lord can spin? Um, so if you hear it in the in the series, I believe we ultimately landed on Kokomo by the Beach Boys, um, but but we probably went through, and I'm totally not making this up. We probably went through 150 different options oh. before we landed on the Beach Boys. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, but that was the only sort of like pre-recorded uh, music that I had to deal. That's with. very cool, very freeing. I, I'd imagine. Yeah. Oh man, it's great. It really yeah. is. And like, can I jump in with a it, question? So, oh yes, please. Uh, so my question to you is like, um, basically, um, how was what, what was the process with coming up with the m- music? I guess, and because like this is kind of like a collaborative process. Um, did you like get the whole story before you start the music, or it's like kind of like building up to what it is right now? Because like from my experience with like you know stuff like D and D, especially you don't know what the story is gonna be. The music kind of has to like weave around with what's gonna happen later. So was it the same as you for for you? And just to add on, did you score to uh, a recorded audio, a recorded voiceover, or was that um, done later? So after, like, did you write it separately and that sort of thing? Yeah. So here was the process for me, which was. Um I was given the scripts in advance and and read them and I, I sort of watched this the script process. They had in writing it, they had several versions of the script that we would receive, and so I would sort of watch the scripts evolve. And then, the what happens is, um, the sound designers would send me send me just the vocal edit, which is just just the voices. So no sound design at all. Um, and I would score to that initially. So, I, for example, 
I, I didn't really hear a lot of sound design when I was creating the music. And so there were definitely places where I was like, gosh, I hope this works. Um, or I hope it's the sound design fits into it. Um, and then the next round would come back and it would be with the first level of sound design and I would sort of adjust as needed. And so then the process was like sort of refining that um, over, over the periods of hearing it back and forth. But it is, it is really fascinating to be like, here is nothing but voices telling a story. Um, nothing else, no visual, no audio, nothing, just voices. And how do you use music to best illuminate that experience? Um, so it, it, it's a very, it's a very pure experience in the way that you're not being distracted by anything, but it is also, it is intimidating because you're like, God, okay. What, you know, like this is it. Like I, I have to come up with the music as a storyteller, uh, idea really with no, nothing in the way, nothing I can hide behind and be like, I don't have to do this part because there's sound design here or whatever. <laughs> this is, you know, it's, it's, uh, you, you have to be willing to be very exposed and vulnerable as a result. Yeah. So that, that was really cool. It's so interesting because as we were, as we were making our way here, we were just chatting about Wastelanders. And one of the things that we, we were talking about is how Marvel is such a visual, um, thing like you know it originated from comics which is 100% visuals and then you know it's it went into games and films and so there's always something that that we're looking at when when we experience uh, a Marvel show in that sense and I think that's partly why this audio drama is so unique because it's entirely just as you said voices sound design and music and you know as as I was listening to it because well it, in some way the, the the imagery that I picture as as I was listening to the audio, audio drama, it's they're, they're so vivid, and I don't know, you know, whether or not that comes from my experiences watching Marvel films and reading Marvel comics, or, you know, the 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 quality and the vividness of the dialogue, sound design, and music, or a mixture of both, and that's so magical, incredible. It is. Yeah. You're absolutely right, and you know, I mean, I think, look, these superhero movies are super popular for a reason uh, in my opinion which is that they really provide um a, a, an epic experience but a really emotional experience that i think we as humans really crave you know which is big stage storytelling right on an epic scale and it is about a person who is seems to have it all together they seem to have these wonderful powers and things that make them there and then they have to go through a journey to discover a they're not as powerful as they thought they were and b that they can still rely upon themselves in order to you know defeat evil and um you know be able to end up happily ever after at the end. And I mean, like, you know, this type of storytelling has been around for millions of years. And it's so effective and powerful still. And I think we as humans really like, I mean, I think we we 
really want to take that journey. We want to go on that ride, the adrenaline of like the highs and lows of that um, so that we can feel emotionally connected to the story itself. And the music is a huge part of that because the scale of the music, I mean, like, honestly, I wish I could play you all just the voices as they are and then put the music on top of it because the voices and the acting are important and I don't want to denigrate them in any way because they're really great. But it is hard to convey the scale of, uh, you know, literally like the fate of the universe um, unless you've got that music in play to really sort of heighten the stakes, the emotional stakes that surround it. Um, so it's it's an incredibly fulfilling and satisfying project. And I would just like to say, if anybody out there would like to hire me to create more music for superheroes, <laughs> I would totally be so thrilled to do it. It's really fun and it, it's challenging. But man, when it... When you get it, it's really freaking satisfying. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I'd imagine. It's what you want music to do in a storytelling context. Yeah. I have one more, a bit more practical question. Um, yeah. Like being as versatile as you are and working in like a, a lot of genres, how do you um, become familiar with something that you, like if you're asked to do something in a genre you're not that comfortable with, How do you approach that? How do you tackle that? Because I, I experience that a lot because I'm mainly orchestral, uh, an orchestral composer, like classically trained. And if somebody asks me to do rock and roll or something like that, um, which, which I will do, but then it's, it's always a challenge. So how, 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 is your, um, how, how do you go, go about doing something like that? Yes, I do have a very specific process for this. And I and it's funny you brought up my teaching earlier. This is something that I work specifically with my students to help them understand how to do this. Um, because as a composer, it's very important that you're able to be flexible to go into multiple genres. And also beyond just like, you know, if you write orchestral music and you need to be able to do rock and roll more than that, I think it's important to really be able to identify that rock and roll is on some level tied to orchestral music, like that the, you know, that there is a history of music in place. And um, one of the joys of discovering music is you begin to learn that all of it is related in some way, that w there are these relationships between cultures and between musical ideas and that um, there is such cross-pollination between those things that um, learning more about orchestral music is going to inform how you can write better rock music and vice versa. Uh, so I encourage people to, if you feel uncomfortable with what you don't know, embrace that uncomfortability, right? Like, don't, don't be like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't go there. But like, I, take it I've, to a positive place, which is like, I want to learn more. I, I tell me more of how I can learn more. So I think the first part is a curiosity um, to really explore it. What I usually tell people to do is really immerse yourself in the style of music that you need to learn, which is to just go out. And and I mean, this is so much better now, you guys, than like 25 years ago, right? Like, Because like, you could just go on Spotify or whatever and just, or like on the internet, and you could 
you have access to everything now. It's incredible. When I was when I was you know a younger person, and I needed to learn more about music, I would go spend like six hours in a record store, you know, just slowly going through and trying to figure out like is this album it maybe this album is it you know what i mean and like just picking things up and seeing, looking at them and being like i wonder if this is going to have the inspiration i need on it but now there's music everywhere so the first thing is completely immerse yourself in the genre of music learn who the people who are most well known for that genre right like figure out the the top eight to ten people who are that thing Listen to their music. And as you listen to their music, are there stylistic similarities that you can start to figure out, right? Like if you and I were going to sit down and study, you know, um, Chicago blues music, right? Okay, so let's sit down and learn Chicago blues. So we're going to sit down. We're going to have, you know, uh, Little Milton, Buddy Guy, all these people, we're going to put them all together, right? And we're going to figure out like, okay, They've got a, this has a certain rhythm. This has a certain uh, formula in terms of how the song is usually set up. There is similarities between how solos are taken at a certain time and what is the sort of like emotional content of that solo. And, we're, and what we're going to try to do is just start to pick out the things where you're like, ah, yes, I see this hallmark of this musical concept in these multiple songs, right? And just generally pull back all the things where you're like, ah, yeah, this, there's this thing that seems to happen in a number of these songs. Um, and then once you have a decent understanding of what are the stylistic hallmarks of a certain genre of music and the formula by which songs usually appear, then you take all of that and you incorporate that into a new piece. And now here's the thing. Once again, I'm going to go back to this thing, which I think is really important. Don't judge yourself. You should not, as you're trying to figure this out, don't be like, but it doesn't sound enough like the real thing, right? Like you'll get there. You just have to sort of work your way into it and figure it out, right? So like, because, you know, if you're going to start writing blues music and you're immediately going to say, Yes, this is blues music, but it's not as good as this B.B. King album. Well, B.B. King had a lot of practice before he got to that album. So, you know what I mean? Like, work your way up, and as you become more into it, what's going to happen is it's not going to be completely authentic, but it's going to be your interpretation of it, and ultimately, that's what's serving the project. That's why you got the gig, is to do your interpretation of that style, and you know, enjoy that, really revel in that and make it something else. And my guess is it's going to be a completely individual take on something. So it will feel like it's coming from you, even though you are um, in many ways borrowing many of the hallmarks that you receive from the people you've listened to. Yeah, there's so much truth and, and wisdom in that. It's um, very good advice. Yeah, yeah, really, really good. Thank you. Um, Take it to heart. <laughs> yeah, Lindsay, I'd love if I could to stay and, and chat more about you know stuff like your 
influences with with rock and I think you you were involved in a band called the New Ball Thangs as well, which um, we've That's been, right. we've yeah, been listening to and playing. vibing to uh, before we started this. Uh, <laughs> but we're we're nearly at the end of time, and um, just right. one final question uh, for the day: What's in store for you in the coming year? Oh gosh, <laughs> um, well. I'm very lucky. Uh, I'm continuing to work on multiple projects. Um, I have I have a film that is actually premiering shortly. It's called Dinosaur Discoveries, which is a 45 minute uh, movie about dinosaurs. It's this big movie. Dinosaurs. Yeah, it's, it's so be cool. Okay, great. So, me too. Come if you in. come. If you come to America, it's it's going to be playing at the Houston. It's starting at the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences, and what it is is it's a dinosaur film, but it is being told uh, it, it's a new uh, technology that is basically holographic cinema. So, like, um, if any of you watched the Super Bowl several years ago when Tupac, yeah, the ghost yeah. of Tupac, appeared at the Super Bowl, that holographic uh, technology is now being incorporated into this large scale film. So. Dinosaurs are literally going to be holograms walking around the room in this movie, which I'm super excited about. It's really awesome. Um, and then I'm managing to keep up a pretty busy theater career. I, like I said, tonight I'm here at Chicago Shakespeare doing the Comedy of Errors. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be at the Denver Center uh, doing the 39 Steps. And then I move to the Cleveland Playhouse to do Moriarty and I'll be... Um, on, I'm basically on tour forever, um, creating music for theater all over the place. Uh, and then in addition to that, I have uh, two audio dramas that I work with and produce music for regularly. Um, one is the Next Chapter podcast, uh, Shakespeare Play on Shakespeare series. Um, and the next series of that is The Tempest, which I will begin working on next week. And I believe the first release first episode of that is released April 7th. Um, and then is that the same, there's the other show. Sorry, is that the same sorry, as uh, the, the, the series of tracks that's labeled The Tempest on your SoundCloud as well? No. Uh, it's possible that I did, you know, I did do a Tempest last summer at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. And that's a very rock and roll. Like, that director wanted all 90s grudge music. So, um, so I did all sort of Nirvana-influenced um, Shakespeare last summer. No, this is a much more traditional telling of the uh, of the Tempest, and it is um, it'll start April seventh, and then I also do a weekly show called The Imagine Neighborhood, which is a podcast specifically for elementary school age children um, to learn more about their feelings and emotions, and that show is hilarious and really fun, um, and you can listen to that every week. So I'll be doing an episode of that, which I imagine will come out next week. So uh, I'm. I'm on the go. Check me out at lindsayjones.com. There's always more new exciting stuff happening all the time. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us here on Composers in a Jukebox today. Yeah, <laughs> thanks Absolutely. so much for having me. This is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Lindsay.